Pixelfield Podcast Episode 9. Welcome everybody. Welcome our listeners to one of the final pre-Christmas episodes of the Pixelfield Podcast. And today I have a very special guest here with us. Um, the guest is Clement Cao from Blend, uh, based in Silicon Valley. So welcome, Clement. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, really excited to be on the Pixelfield Podcast. Um, so just a little bit about myself. Um, again, sure. <laughs> um, again uh, I'm Clement. I'm currently a product manager at Blend, which is a Series E fintech startup uh, in Silicon Valley. Uh, we're really looking to make digital lending a lot better. And so kind of that's my uh, formal job title. Um, informally, I'm also a co-founder of Product Manager HQ. Um, so that's an online resource that has helped, you know, hundreds of thousands of product managers get better at their craft. So again, really excited to join. You know, thanks so much for having me, Marek. Right. So um, let's just talk a bit about Product Manager HQ, the, the website that you co-founded. Um, I, I saw that you published over 60 articles about um, product ma management. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, uh, so today I would like to focus about one specific article, uh, and that was the article about the importance of being data-informed rather than data being data-driven. Um, so could you please maybe give us a brief overview of the case study that, that serves as the foundation of the whole article? Uh, maybe there is no need to jump into the um, specific reasons of why your team was data-driven in, in, instead of uh, being data-informed. But just uh, yeah, a short overview would be great for the uh, listeners to understand what we will be talking about. Yeah, for sure. Um, so taking a quick step back, so the way that I at least define the difference between being data-driven and being data-informed is that data-driven really means that it, data is your primary decision-making criteria, right? So you defer to the data, whatever the data tells you to do, you do. Whereas being data-informed is a little bit more nuanced where data is a, is a key factor to how you make your decisions, but it's not the only factor with which you make your decisions. And so kind of back when I was working um, in this particular uh, tech company, um, it was in you know, between 2015, 2016, one of the things that was all the rage at the time was being really data-driven, you know, really surrendering to data to say, whatever the data says must be correct, we're going to go act on data. And you know, that kind of corresponded with this explosion in terms of the robustness of analytics and tracking. And so really mm -hmm. a lot of people started becoming very data-driven. And so one of the things that I discuss in my case study is basically one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to penetrate this entirely new market that we had never set foot in before. And so we decided to continue relying on this company core competency of let's be data-driven. Like let's use the data that we have. We're masters at knowing how to track data. Let's use this to make sure that we can launch this new initiative as successfully as we can. And funnily enough, um, that actually bit us pretty hard because one of the core challenges of being data-driven is that you rely entirely on the data. And so if you have no data there, or if the type of data that you're gathering is not the right type, it can actually cause you to make the wrong conclusion where you would have been able to make a much better conclusion if you had been data informed instead. And so what we actually wound up doing at the end to course correct was we actually reached out to the market, to our consumers, to do a lot more um, to do a lot more qualitative insight, kind of rather than using behavioral tracking, we actually reached out to people to talk to them 
And by doing so, we actually found that, oh, hey, what we were doing was we were just marketing our product incorrectly, where marketing offline was a lot more impactful than marketing online. And the reason why we were so hesitant to do so, which you know, I'm sure we'll discuss in a little bit, was because we had so much fantastic instrumentation in the online channel. You know, we could very easily tell what geography did someone come through on, what did they click, what were their search terms. Whereas with offline marketing, if you have a billboard, it's very hard to know who saw that billboard. And when they come to visit your website, whether they'd seen your billboard. And so we were very concerned about going this offline path, but it wound up that the types of consumers we were looking for primarily looked for services like ours offline. And so we had to get comfortable with being data informed, with being a lot more qualitative than we're used to, to be able to actually drive the insight that we needed to grow a really successful business. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So um, basically the main reason why we found this article um, particularly interesting with my colleagues was the, the, the fact that online you can find a great variety of articles talking about the different um, requirements for using data uh, for uh, your decision making, uh, how to uh, decide on the good data type, how to make the, um, how, how to get the right type of data uh, and how to use it properly, how to analyze it properly. But um, I found it very exciting to hear from a data specialist something about the importance of qualitative uh, approach. And uh, I, I'm currently actually teaching at the University of Amsterdam a course called Qualitative Research. So I might be a, a bit biased in that sense. <laughs> But uh, to me, uh, it seems really intuitive to be data informed instead of being data driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just seems like a, like a no brainer because of course you cannot uh, totally rely on, on the numbers. Um, so uh, why do you think that product teams are data driven often? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. And so I'd say, I think one of the things that you see a lot is that uh, when people are behaving a certain way, you typically see kind of these macro patterns shift like a pendulum. And so before the wave of people being really data-driven, I think a lot of people were being very qualitative, right? Kind of uh, when a lot of people were doing startups, they might have just relied on, you know, the word of mouth of friends, you know, they might have relied on blind loyalty kind of rather than digging deep into data. And so when people found out, oh, I can actually use data to make rigorous decisions, I think potentially what happened was you saw the product management culture overcorrect. And so it's, oh, well, we have all this data. We can now be very rigorous. Like, let's make sure that we implement data at every step so that that way we no longer make those mistakes of over-trusting a single data point, like over-trusting the words of someone mm-hmm. rather than actually looking at their quantitative behavior. And so kind of as that continued to solidify, you saw that people started baking in a lot of being data-driven into people's actual career ladders, right? So if I wanted, let's say, you know, back in 2015 or 2016, if I wanted to be be promoted from being an associate product manager to being a full-blown product manager, or from a product manager into a senior product manager, one of the key steps is know how to use SQL, know how to write your A-B tests, like know how to get all of this data crunching to happen, right? And when Mm -hmm. you are being implicitly incentivized in that way, kind of your, your culture will become very focused on, let's make sure we have the data. Like, let's make sure that we are being as quantitative as possible. And you might forget that, oh, there's all of this richness that happens within qualitative data. Um, you know, being able to talk to people and really being able to hear their experiences and their thought processes. 
Um, and again, kind of one of the things that happens a lot is if you have very highly technical people, right, you have engineers, you have product managers, you have people who are really focused on the numbers, they may start to lose over time the ability to empathize with someone over very qualitative talk, very qualitative in the field behavior that you can't actually quantify because now they have all of these best practices of, oh, well, this is my statistical significance. This is my level of confidence. These are the lengths of time that we're going to run an experiment. And so it becomes more and more foreign to reach out and do that qualitative insight over time. And so I think right now we're seeing a little bit of another course correction back where people are starting to find that, hey, being data-driven can actually wind up hurting you. And so one of the things that I've noticed at least in terms of the literature that's being published these days has been kind of a move back away from being purely data-driven, using data as only a single factor, and really embracing the complexity of the world and really reaching out to really empathize with people. I think that's why you also see the rise of these customer success organizations, because customer success is a really great way to get that qualitative insight that you might not get with only an analytics department on hand. All right, uh, well, that, that actually, uh brought us to one of my uh, questions that I wanted to ask you. Uh, mm -hmm. Your article, uh, the article that we are talking about is from June 2018. So mm -hmm. what has changed since then? Um, and would you say that there is, as, as you probably um, think, a positive trend towards being data informed instead of data driven? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and to be entirely honest, you know, one of the things that I'll go ahead and call out now is uh, my background is in business to business product management. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the core things that happens in business to business is by virtue of that distribution model, you have to start being more qualitative anyways. You know, one of the things that happens is when you're selling to a business, right, kind of rather than selling to multiple, you know, individual consumers where you might have millions of users, you might only have something like hundreds of organizations to work with kind of your unit of testing is an organization. It's not the number of employees. And with that, that means that you will never get statistical significance on certain types of analyses. And so you lean really heavily into the qualitative to begin with. So given that I've been sitting in the B2B space a lot, I think right now in the B2B space, people are still trying to lean into being more data informed in terms right. of they started from a place where they actually weren't leveraging data that much, right? You still see a lot of senior executives kind of making decisions based off of what a customer's CEO uh, told them, kind of rather than backing it up with data. And so I think in the B2B space, you see that people are still leaning more heavily into the data because they weren't that uh, data informed to begin with. Whereas in the B2C space, you're now starting to see the rise of a lot more of these, you know, in the field, UX behavioralists, UX researchers, to help counterbalance kind of all of the existing core competencies of being really analytically driven um, based off of all of this tracking. And so I would say that in the B2C space, people are moving away from data driven towards data informed. In the B2B space, I think people are moving away from just being entirely too qualitative towards being more data informed. And so I think kind of across both of these business models, you do see a correction towards the middle where you are combining together the richness of the data that you get from being uh, quantitative, but also the depth of insight and kind of that individual complexity that you get by really focusing on people's behavior in a qualitative sense. Right, right, okay. All right, um, so would you say that being um, 
being data informed is maybe the optimal area between the two extremes that you want to aim for in that in that's in the sense that um i don't know have you ever cooperated with teams who were maybe struggling with the opposite problems so maybe they were too focused on qualitative insights and assumptions and not really backed by the hard quantitative data yeah that's a fantastic question and so i would say um first off kind of answering the second part of the question um, I have actually worked with teams who are, you know, a little bit too over-reliant on, you know, what people say, kind of rather mm -hmm. than actually looking at what people do. And so um, from there, you know, the struggle is, you know, let's say, you know, one of your executive leaders says, oh, we're going to do this thing because a customer promised us, you know, all of this revenue if we do this thing, kind of rather than looking to see, well, is this reflective of a broader trend? Is this actually part of our core offering? And so that can be very uh, challenging and it can be very tough to kind of demonstrate to executives that yes, that is a fantastic data point that you have, but that's a data point in the singular. Let's actually go ahead and reach out to get kind of more insight to really better understand kind of rather than over indexing on a single story, let's actually better understand what the field looks like, right? Product market fit, not product customer fit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that has certainly been a challenge that I faced before. I think addressing the first part of your question of, hey, um, you know, is being data informed kind of the most optimal? I'd say really it depends on the product and it really depends on the company, right? I think one of the most uh, frustrating things that my readers uh, will know based on all the articles I've written is really everything depends on context. It really depends on a very reasoned, nuanced reading of the context, right? So if you are working in, you know, in a particularly interesting position where you have, you know, all of this really well instrumented quantitative data and that quantitative data can really help you to understand the qualitative why behind it, then perhaps you don't actually need to be so data informed. Maybe you can actually let data kind of do all of the decision making for you. Um, and so things I'm thinking of, you know, potentially uh, Google search, right, like the Facebook social graph, those are so deeply instrumented and have so much traffic on them that you don't really need to have behavioral insight and taking the time to go reach for behavioral insight can actually be you know, much slower for you rather than running all of these experiments you know, simultaneously in parallel, right? Kind of one of the things to always be keeping in mind is kind of the trade-off between impact and speed. Of course, with behavioral insight, with the qualitative understanding, you have to talk to people, right? And talking to people can take time. And so if time is of the essence, and you happen to have really, really amazing high quality data, maybe you can get away with making up for behavioral insights simply by running as many experiments as you can. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you are you know, just starting a company, let's say it's you and maybe two other co-founders and there's no one else, you may not have data to begin with, right? You may have no instrumentation. You may not even have a product out on the market yet. You have no usage at all. And so it would be not even correct to be data informed because you have no data with which to inform you. And so kind of, you have to spend all of that time talking to people and understanding their complex nuanced stories and kind of the landscape of their pain so that you know what it is that you should build. And so that you know, what is it that I should instrument so that I can move towards being data informed kind of rather than being driven by anecdotes, like being driven by stories, right? So mm -hmm. I think, again, it really depends on the context, which can be frustrating. Um, but I would say that the kind of the general rules of thumb are, you know, if time is not of the essence, right? So mm -hmm. if you have no product yet, 
Um, or if you're trying to launch something that's very, very new and you just don't have any data to work with, be super qualitative, go out there, talk to people, really understand their pains, go shadow people, you know, pretend to be a customer yourself. And if you have a lot of really, really rich data, um, you know, lean into that strength, but remember to keep your head above water, to surface up and to check occasionally, you know, let's say maybe every two weeks, maybe every month of having still that stream of behavioral insight, not so much as a blocker of, oh, I need to get this answer to run this experiment, but more so as a check to see, well, did we drift off course? Are we too focused on the data? Um, and really making sure that the voice of the customer is still appearing as you design your experiments. Right. All right. I think that's an excellent recommendation. Um, so um, I think you have quite a rich experience in, in product management. You've probably um, teamed up with many uh, different squads um, when working on products. Uh, would you say that um, the type of teams that struggle the most with being data informed are um, maybe teams that have all the members coming from a digital quantitative focused background? Yeah, I think that's a relatively accurate reflection, right? And so kind of, you know, when people are operating in their roles, they typically bring their previous context with them, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if you came from a context where you are very data driven, right, where you have all this really rich data and you're being placed in a role where you don't have that much rich data, you will naturally lean into your strength. You will say, oh, well, let's look at the data that we do have, kind of rather than trying to figure out how do we work with insights that we don't yet have, right? And so I think that can be very challenging. Um, and one of the things that actually discussed in the case study is we actually got very lucky that we had someone on our team who was really, really focused on being qualitative, right? I think, and that's another reason why having really diverse teams is incredibly important. Diverse in the sense of coming from different backgrounds because people will have different perspectives based on their past operating contexts that will really help you to navigate the field, right? And so if kind of everyone comes from being, you know, you know, I'm an ex-analyst and I'm an ex-engineer and I'm an ex-whatever, um, and you're too technically oriented, too numbers oriented, that can mess you up because again, then you are not looking for, well, what are the stories that might disprove my fundamental hypothesis? And if your entire team comes from sales or if your entire team comes from, uh, you know, user research where you may be overly qualitatively uh, indexed, then you may not think to ask the questions of, well, is my sample representative, right? Like, do I have enough people to actually understand that this is a trend, right? And so I've kind of worked with teams on both sides of the spectrum and it's really mm -hmm. realizing, you know, what is this team's composition? Kind of what are their current strengths and weaknesses? And also understanding, again, the context that we're operating in. Sometimes it's totally okay to not need to change the team's perspective because it happens to be a really good fit. And sometimes it's not a good fit. And so then we have to look for how do we bring kind of that counterbalancing voice to make sure that we're either being more oriented towards data or more oriented towards stories. Um, and it really just depends on the product lifecycle, the product need, as well as the team composition. Mm -hmm. um... So many of our listeners are uh, entrepreneurs and startup founders. And um, so just to sum up some, some of the learnings that they should maybe take away from um, our chat, um, the, the, best, the best way to prevent the team being uh, too data-driven 
is probably to constantly challenge all your, all your assumptions, right? In all, in all the steps of the roadmap. And also to um, ensure that the team has a variety of backgrounds and approaches, right? Would you maybe add, add a few more? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so I guess to refine your statement, um, you know, you're correct in terms of, you know, really placing an emphasis on diversity and being okay with people having different viewpoints and having that dissonance can actually be really helpful in ensuring that you have all of your angles covered. One of the things that I would challenge actually is challenging every assumption. I think challenging every assumption is highly time consuming and can sometimes be quite toxic. Right, like if you have a really good shared understanding of the customer as they are in the real world, there's not really a good reason to go challenge that. I think a lot of it is implementing more. Uh, how do I phrase this? If you have noticed from the start that you are either over-indexed on data or over-indexed on anecdotes, um, making the course correction upfront is really important. Right, I think one of the things that people say a lot about product management, which is true is you know, half the battle is defining the problem, right? And so if the problem is defined incorrectly, kind of everything else that comes afterwards is not helpful. And so spending a lot of time up front of what is the question that we're trying to answer? What are the key risks? What are we trying to de-risk? Um, can be really helpful to make sure that when you begin, the fundamental assumption is correct so that when you move down further, you don't have to go and revisit and re-question everything all the time. And the reason why I bring that up is because you know, I've worked in different organizations where some organizations, they never question the assumptions. Of course, that's bad, especially when the market changes or especially mm -hmm. when you begin with a false premise, that will really mess you up. But on the flip side, if you're always questioning all the time and you're always revisiting even the most basic fundamentals when there's no good reason to, that also can waste a lot of time. That can actually create a lot of distrust and can remove a lot of the momentum that you have. And so the way that I would think about it is kind of in between the two, again, which is more spend a lot of time up front in really understanding what is the customer pain that I'm trying to solve, right? Like, what is it about this particular pain that makes it so attractive to me? Why is it that we are going to go make this particular type of customer's life better? What does better mean for this customer? You know, do we have a lot of data yet? Or do we have a lot of stories yet? And if not, how do we shore that up? Um, and then kind of once you have a really good cadence in place, not necessarily, you know, asking to break every single assumption again, but rather having checks in place of maybe every month or so, if you're very stories driven, make a check on being data, right? And if you're very data driven, right, then like have a check in place on, well, let's make sure that we talk to a customer every, you know, two weeks or every month or so. Um, again, just to really help to balance those two. I think so long as your internal mental model is a good representation of reality, and then there's really no reason to keep questioning your internal mental model. And of course, if your internal mental model is very out of line, like misaligned with reality, then that's a good time to do that reality check, right? To make sure that you are kind of operating on the right landscape. Um, but I don't necessarily think that you need to question everything all the time, but rather take all of that time that you would question kind of throughout the project and front load it. Make sure that the very, very beginning, you are spending a lot of time really asking the hard questions, really having everyone debate right at the start so that you have a lot of that alignment um, with reality and with each other kind of going into the project. Um, so that's how I would think about it at least, um, is again, really, really orienting yourself around what is the customer pain 
And to know the customer pain, you have to know the customer. So do you know the customer? If you don't know the customer um, through the data and through their stories, you know, which one am I missing? Am I missing more of the data or am I missing more of the stories? How do I get more of that so that we understand, okay, what is the pain? Do we understand the, what their behavior is and what is really good for using quantitative on? And why are they doing that? What is their behavior, right? And so then that's a really good place to do shadowing, to do surveys, to do interviews, to really understand why people are doing the things that they're doing. And so it's really marrying together this what and why together um, at the very start and then kind of counterbalancing uh, as the project runs on, I think is probably the most successful way to do it that costs the least resources and kind of mental energy to do. All right. I think that was a great piece of advice. Um, but so we touched upon the, the variety of backgrounds. Um, mm -hmm. And I what, what uh, seemed to be really interesting about your CV is the fact that you also studied molecular and cell biology. <laughs> uh, so I wondered if that helped you in any way in your career of uh, being a product manager. And maybe if it helped you, if it, if it e equipped you with a certain skill set or mindset that you maybe help uh, that maybe helped you stay data informed um, when doing product management yeah that's a fantastic question um, so for all of our listeners out there um, you know kind of a quick summary of my background uh, i double majored in molecular and cell biology as well as business administration which are kind of very weird combination um, then my first job out of college was in management consulting um, and then I moved into kind of UX research. Then I moved into product analytics, kind of being more data oriented. Um, and then I moved into product management. And so kind of calling out each of those different pieces, one of the really amazing things about being a cell biologist is you need to learn a lot about systems, right? When you change one molecule within some one reaction, you can actually see the entire organism change. You can actually see all of these different downstream effects. And so one of the things that I found very valuable with my you know, biology background is really this ability to think in terms of systems, right? Where if you change one thing, it's not just you know, the, its neighbor that will change. It's all of these downstream effects that might happen. And these downstream effects might actually feed back in in a positive or negative feedback loop to change everything. And so that makes me a lot more thoughtful, I think, in terms of running an experiment, kind of rather than just looking at the upfront conversion number, really thinking through what does this actually do to the rest of the product portfolio? And what does this do to the rest of the customer's life cycle? Their journey, I think, has really been able to help me. I would say being an ex-consultant has really enabled me to be a lot more qualitative, to be able to dive really deep in terms of what are people's pains and to really talk with them and to be more of a salesperson. Whereas then being a product analyst with having all of that SQL capabilities with really thinking through what is the data telling me has really then en enabled me to know when to shift into the data versus when to shift into the stories, right? And so one of the things that I would say about product management um, is, you know, every type of background has its own value proposition, kind of each one will give you a particular strength, but with it a corresponding weakness, right? So um, if I had relied solely on my consultant mental model, then I might be too sales oriented and I might not think enough about, oh, well, not just my customer account, but what about all the other customers? What about all the other prospects that I haven't spoken to with? What is their data? What are their stories, right? Whereas if I were too much focused on kind of my biology mindset, 
I might be paralyzed. I might say, well, I don't know what's going to happen in the rest of the system, so I don't want to run an experiment because I'll break something, right? And so I think really being thoughtful about what is it that I bring to the table? What are the strengths that it comes with? And what are the corresponding weaknesses that it comes with can really help you to leverage the most of your capabilities while minimizing the most of your existing biases. So kind of that's how I think about my own background is it's a very strange background that I think not a lot of people have, but it doesn't mean that you need to have my background to succeed. It means that kind of if you're thoughtful about the background that you have, you can leverage that to do a lot more than you might have thought you could have done before. All right. I think that's a great encouragement for uh, all the listeners who are interested in entrepreneurship, maybe are studying uh, biology or chemistry or whatever, and uh, are thinking if they're wasting their time or not. So this is the message for you. You're not wasting your time. Just uh, make the most out of your studies and uh, make it one of your strengths, right? Absolutely. Um, all right. Um, so staying with the academia, I just uh, I had this thought when I was preparing for the interview um, that um, basically I can see a tendency in academia to assign greater value to and importance to quantitative research compared to qualitative. Uh, so I was uh, interested to in hearing your uh, thoughts on that. Uh, why do you think that is? And uh, what do you think that says about our society? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And so I think, um, you know, being a little bit more nuanced with that statement, I would say in the fields of, let's say, you know, computer science or in terms of physics, chemistry, et cetera, you do tend to see a lot of focus on quantitative results, the data, kind of rather than the qualitative. And again, that's just because of the context that these people are coming with, right? They, they come from very technical backgrounds. They have a lot of data that they can use. Whereas in kind of the quote unquote social sciences, right? In psychology, anthropology, sociology, uh, organizational behavior, you do still see people drawing very heavily from the qualitative side and like really basing their entire analysis off of maybe speaking to 10 people or 100 people kind of rather than a, a deeper understanding of the data. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that one side is right or not, but more so that, again, each side is bringing to the table their previous successes and their previous failures and using that mental model to continue attacking new problems. And that can be okay if the type of problems you're tackling warrant that strategy. But I think part of the challenge is people are not really considering, well, what type of problem am I facing? Should I change my mix of being qualitative versus quantitative? And I think a lot of people don't ask that question. They just say, well, because I am really good at data, I'm going to continue using data as my, uh, as my hammer. Like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So you just always use the same tools. If you're very qualitatively driven, you say, oh, I'm going to keep doing all of these interviews, 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 and I'll always be able to get the right answer through that. And again, sometimes true, sometimes not. And so I would say, generally speaking, what that says about our society is people like being comfortable right? You know, people like being experts in the thing that they do. And, you know, when you're an expert, there's nothing left for you to learn, right? Kind of you just execute because you're at the top of your craft, right? But I think that's not the right way to do things because our society is getting ever more complex. I think one of the things that I see, not just in product management, but also in academia, is this need to be multidisciplinary, to be able to leverage both the qualitative and the quantitative together depending on the context that you're tackling, because we're answering 
harder and harder and harder questions every single day. And so again, shout out to all of the listeners on this podcast. You know, you're doing really amazing things in terms of tackling these really hard problems as an entrepreneur, you know, as a product manager, the questions are getting harder every single time because all the easy questions have already been answered, right? And so I think what that means is we need to not be comfortable. We need to be okay not being experts. We need to be students, right? Kind of being humble and knowing that we're going to be wrong has really, you know, opened my eyes up to a lot of different ways in which different fields think. I think one of the things that I personally enjoy about, you know, both my working life as well as, you know, being, you know, uh, part of Product Manager HQ is really getting the opportunity to learn from so many different people and to hear all of their different perspectives so that my toolbox is bigger, right? I think, again, one of the things that, you know, I may not be as strong at is A-B testing, right? Because, you know, given that I'm now in, you know, business to business where I don't have a lot of quantitative data to use, I'm always so interested in hearing from B2C product managers because they have these different tools and these different mental models that I don't yet naturally use, right? And so Mm -hmm. being able to use that at the right time can be very, very powerful, right? And so, again, I would say, um, the one thing that happens a lot is kind of people will try to over-specialize. They will say, oh, I'm good at this one thing. I'm going to keep being really good at this one thing. I'll be rewarded for being good at it. I'm just going to keep focusing here. That's okay in the short run, but in the long run, you'll run out of easy questions. You'll start tackling harder and harder questions and your previous mental models will no longer be sufficient. And so that's why I think being really humble and being really excited to learn about everything from all of the people around you is such a powerful multiplying factor. Being really collaborative, being really welcoming of diverse opinions will really enable you to tackle much harder problems and to bring new perspectives that you didn't have before. Yeah, I can completely agree. Uh, so just to cl- maybe clarify my initial point about the tendency in academia towards quantitative research. Um, so I move around the, the field of social sciences as well, behavioral science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, communication science. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I saw a lot of research happening in the Netherlands <clears throat> tackling some um, marketing communication issues. Mm-hmm. Well, and that in these research projects, I often saw the really the tendency to prefer quantitative uh, findings and insights as something that is just more valuable. And that just seems really strange to me. So uh, I can totally um, agree with all, everything you said. And I just think that it's it's just amazing in science and also in business to use qualitative insights as the foundation and then build up on top of that. But don't divide the two worlds too much. Um, don't specialize just on one of them. Exactly as you said, just try to, to constantly learn in both worlds and uh, use both worlds to the best of your advantage. Um, I don't know if you agree with that or... Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that actually is happening in the world of academia is you actually see right now this, uh, this replication crisis, right? You actually see that there are a lot of these studies where they use all of these numbers. And then when someone goes and redoes the study, they're like, wait, I can't get these numbers anymore, right? And I think one of the reasons why that happens is because a lot of the gatekeepers in academia, kind of these, you know, uh, journals where you're publishing, I yep. think they use statistical significance as a crutch right? Statistical significance, you know, for our listeners is basically what is the chance that this result happened due to chance, right? Like what is, what is the probability that this is an actual result and not just random noise? And the thing is, it's a construct. I think one of the things that people don't realize is that 
the analysis of data is fundamentally human, right? Like there's no such thing as like statistical significance out in the real world. That's just something that we made up as people, right? And we say, oh, this, this must be the threshold. But like, if you, if you look back at the history of statistical significance using a p-value of 0.05, like people made that up, right? Like people said, oh, 5% sounds good. We'll use 5%, right? And so I think one of the challenges is because people have really become too rigid in terms of, oh, well, we're always going to solve the same problem the same way. You don't get to publish unless your result is, you know, 95% significant or 99% significant or whatever. Yep. You then see people really, really over-indexed on, well, we have to use data then. Like there's no other way for us to be able to submit to this journal because this journal demands that our results must be statistically significant. Like we're not allowed to use the qualitative, right? And so I think one of the things that's very interesting is that people are now writing a lot more in academia, not so much to papers, but to actually, you know, others as essays, right? Like talking about a singular case and, you know, submitting that to others to be able to read rather mm. than going through the journal route. Because again, the journal route, currently the gatekeepers are so quantitatively focused. And mm. I think, again, that has, that has caused a replication crisis, right? Right now people are p-hacking. Uh, for our listeners, yeah. p-hacking is basically when you redo an experiment over and over again, or you cherry pick different results to make it look like your result is significant. Because again, people are saying, oh no, so significance is the only thing that matters. It has to be quantitative. And again, you know, based on what we just talked about right now, that's not always the case, right? There are just some things that you cannot get quantitatively. There are some things that you just have to talk to people about. There are just some complexities that the data will not reveal on its own. And so I think because of the way in which academia is currently systematized, right? Kind of the current institution of academia is very quantitatively driven. Um, I think that is causing all of these downstream problems where people are not as willing and are not being incentivized to consider the human element, to consider uh, the anecdotes and the stories to help tell a bigger narrative, especially mm -hmm. when the gatekeepers say, no, 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 it has to be just data, right? So I think that's where really the root of a lot of these challenges are coming from. Um, and so you do see a lot of these very interesting counter trends where people are no longer, you know, publishing as much kind of in a, in a scientific paper, they might actually write up an essay and kind of submit that to a literary magazine instead to talk about this very interesting case in psychology or this very interesting case in communications, because there's no way it would get published in a scientific journal. So I think that's just something that's very interesting to think about. How is it that we ourselves as people are setting up our institutions? Kind of what is it that we're saying is success? And what is it that we're saying is failure? And is that true, right? So again, the most infuriating thing that people have noticed when talking to me is I always say, oh, context, 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 right? Like everything is a system. Um, but I do think it's really true, right? I mean, you know, everything is a human endeavor. Kind of all of us are in this together, working on things together. And so it is very insightful sometimes to think about, well, what is the root cause? Like, why are things happening the way that they are? kind of who made these decisions and why, right? So I think, um, you know, I completely agree with you in terms of, you know, it can be very frustrating when a problem is being tackled in the wrong way, kind of they're over-indexed on being data-driven, kind of rather than having a bigger balance of using anecdotal stories as well as the data. So totally agree with you. I think that is a really big challenge, not just here within product, within the industry, but also in our sister, you know, academia as well. Yep, yep um great so you mentioned working uh together on uh, all the all the new complicated societal problems 
uh, and uh, that's what many of our listeners are doing as well, the startup founders and other people involved in uh, digital product teams. So maybe uh, let's wrap up the interview with some key pieces of advice for startup founders, for product managers. Um, and because I think that you definitely have a lot of experience uh, and some great insights in your head. So could you please share some key learnings, uh, maybe three key learnings, one for each uh, step of the roadmap uh, and the three steps would be first the initial concept creation and validation phase the second one uh, the design and development and the third one the well the growth and the further development of the product yeah for sure um so again kind of taking everything back up to the top so you know why are we qualitative and why are we quantitative at all and the reason why we are is because we do that to understand our customers, not just one customer, but all of them, kind of the entire market landscape, right? And so I would say that, you know, at the very first phase of, you know, concept creation and validation, again, you will likely don't have any data to start with, but you have customers. And if you don't have customers, you have friends, right? And so you really want to reach out and talk to people and you really want to lean really heavily into the qualitative and ask why, 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 why? So when someone tells you, oh, I, I don't want to buy this from you, ask, well, do you mind telling me why that's the case? And they might tell you, oh, because there's this other product out there that does this thing, or because, oh, well, I'm just not the right target audience. And then you ask them again, well, why do you feel you're not the right target audience? Right? And it's like, oh, well, because this is too sophisticated and I don't feel sophisticated enough. It's, oh, well, why do you not feel sophisticated enough? Like ask why, 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 why at the very start when you're working through validation, right? And when you start hearing people give you answers to the whys that are starting to line up and say, well, I think this product is fantastic for me because, and they're actually proactively telling you why, and you hear all of these whys lining up, you know you have validation at that point, right? So I would say when you're at the very beginning, um, again, really focus on the customer from a qualitative perspective. And then from there, when you go into design and development, and if you've already gone through this divergent phase of we're going to talk to all these different people we're going to get all these different conflicting mental models which one do we want to prioritize as you design and develop complete that feedback loop like bring those prototypes back to the people that you talk to and ask them hey does this solve your pain right and there you can start leaning towards being a little bit more quantitative right so you can do particular research things such as um you know task simplicity task completion rates but still leaning into that qualitative of, well, why doesn't this solve your pain, right? Like, why do you not feel that this flow makes sense to you? Or, oh, why do you think this flow makes sense to you? Why would you recommend this to your friends, right? And then from there, once you've been able to develop and you've been able to ship, and now you've instrumented analytics, you're in that growth and development phase, now is a good time to lean into the what. And so that's a good time to start leaning into the data because if you only ever ask why to individual people, you're never going to be able to hear all of your customers, right? Especially if you're really wildly successful. And especially if you're talking to, you know, if your product is touching a thousand people, you can't talk to a thousand people in a week, right? Yeah. And your customers deserve to have you listen to them at a much faster feedback cycle. And so that's when you want to lean much more heavily into the data to really understand, okay, well, I can't talk to everyone, but I can at least see what everyone's doing. What are they doing? And then when you see something interesting, then using that to drive your next set of, quant of qualitative uh, insight of, oh, people are doing this thing with our product that I think is very interesting. I wanna reach out to these people and ask, why are you doing it, right? 
And from there, you'll find some new nugget of insight that you can then use to drive, again, more concept creation, more validation, and then more design and development, and then more growth. And so kind of you, you should see in this engine, kind of as you move through the different phases, you first begin very qualitative, and you ask a lot about people. And then you shift eventually into the quantitative to make sure that the stories that you're getting are not biased and to make sure that you're listening to all of your customers. And then from there, when you find something to focus on, you move all the way back towards the qualitative to focus, to really dive deep. And then again, moving back into the quantitative to see, well, this thing that we shipped, did it actually solve people's pain? Did it actually make our entire customer base stronger? Or did it only solve for that one customer that I talked to? Right? So kind of you should see this pendulum in between why and what you should be you know, comfortable being both qualitative and quantitative. Um, and I think that'll really get you a lot of success in terms of driving that engine of knowing your customer from multiple angles, whether it's one person at depth or whether it's all of the people at breadth. Perfect. Okay. Amazing insights as well. Um, and I hope our listeners were taking good notes. So I think that's, I think that's it for today. So thank you, Clement, again, for taking your time to join us and, uh, share all your experience with us i think it was really great so thank you again thank you again you know really appreciate having the opportunity to be on the pixel podcast again for all the listeners out there you know you're doing amazing things right and so keep doing what you're doing you know really obsess over the customer and really accept kind of all of these you know different viewpoints and you'll you'll build something amazing so all of us here are cheering you on Perfect. All right. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get to uh, great product management and let's build something amazing. So thank you again, Clement, and have a very good day. You too. Thanks so much.